Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we humble ourselves before Your great wisdom and great power, Your profound holiness, Your mysterious love, and Your beautiful grace. We pray, Father, as we have sung tonight, to to be wrapped in, in Your will, to be folded into it in such a way, Father, that that we bring glory to You in all that we say and all that we do and all of our affections and where they are placed in our values and especially in our ability to love people, Father, people that You have created. And so as we approach Your Word tonight, Father, with, with humility being foremost that we pray for, We're asking that You give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray, Father, that that You grant that in the name of Jesus. Bless us in study. Bless us in study. And bless us tonight, Father, as we endeavor to, to be Your people in this community. And we pray all of this with all of our heart. In the name of Christ, Amen. This, uh, this psalm that, uh, that Tim has read for us is, is a curious psalm. Uh, the, the psalm is about the desperate need for forgiveness. He prays for mercy to come to him in verse 2. He prays for forgiveness, that forgiveness is found in no one but God in verse 4. And uh, the psalmist used a very, very powerful metaphor to help draw us into the psalm and to identify with what it is that he is struggling with. He has done something that is terrible, and, and not just, not, not just uh, something uh, simply outside of the will of God. The, the psalmist has done something that has caused his life to sink. The psalmist is in a bad place. He's in depths. And because he is in depths, he cannot climb out. He is in a place where he is stuck. And it's his voice, better yet, it's his crying out, that is his only asset. And so he cries out to God. He cries out for help. And even that is not enough if there is no one to hear his cry and no one who will do something about it. And so his hope, the hope of the psalm, is found in another. But not just anyone, but the one who in verse 7, the psalmist says, is the Lord of unfailing love. Rick actually tells the story, a true story, about a senior at Texas Tech University. He was taking a class in logic and philosophy. Needed that one class to graduate Comes time for the final exam and the professor tells the students that they can put anything they want on an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. Anything they put on that paper can be used to help them on that final exam. Put whatever you want on it, bring it with you to class, and take the exam. And everyone did that. A week before the the exam uh, comes about, they're they're in the library. They're they're trying to write as much as they can in tiny letters on this 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. There are notes written all over it, all except one student. 
on the day of the exam, they all show up. They have they pull out their eight and a half by eleven piece of paper, and uh, they're ready to take that exam with all those notes on it, except for that one student who walks in with a blank piece of paper, puts it on the floor. A minute later, a graduate student in logic and philosophy walks in and goes and stands on that piece of paper. And that student was the only one who scored an A on the the exam. There's a, a story in the New Testament. Every time I read Psalm 130, I think of a story in the New Testament. And it's the story of a woman who needed someone to stand and to help her. It's found in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law. Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this as, a, as a, this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to ride on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's a, it's, it's a great story. And there are basically three main characters in the story. The first are the men with stones in hand. One day Jesus goes to the temple courts in Jerusalem and he sits down in the shadow of the temple. At this time, Jesus is not a very popular figure among some of the religious elite in Israel. At the very beginning of John's Gospel, he has cleared the temple and, 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 and has, uh, in, in a sense of foreshadowing, pronounced judgment on it. And they don't like him very much. And in order to discredit him, they try to trap him. And this is something that they try to do all over the country of Israel. In Matthew chapter 19, there are some religious leaders, some religious people that come to him and say, Can a man put away his wife for any reason? They wanted to trap him. They wanted to catch him in a question. A couple of chapters later, in Matthew chapter 22, they asked him, Should we pay taxes to Caesar? They did that in order to trap him. And that's the situation that we have here in John 8. They want to trap him. They want to catch him in a question. They want to to discredit him. So they have grabbed a woman in the very act of adultery. The very act. Presumably in this moment that she appears before Jesus and is made to stand before the group she's scantily clothed. Perhaps disheveled. And they make her stand before the group. And no one doubts what this is. Everyone recognizes it. She is on trial. And they ask the question. This woman is without a a shadow of a doubt an adulteress. She was caught in the very act of adultery, the law of Moses. The law of Moses says that she should be stoned to death. What say you? 
And that is indeed what the law said. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 22. If a man is found with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. But here is where the trap comes into play. Once Herod the Great had died and Archelaus, his son, began to rule in his place, uh, Archelaus was such a terrible leader and such a terrible king that there was a group of people that went to talk to Caesar and convinced him to remove Archelaus as, as, as the king. And Rome decided to do that. And in so doing, they had, knocked, they had demoted Archelaus down a couple of notches. They brought in their own governor who would rule from Caesarea Maritima. And he would be the one who had the authority to judge in capital punishment cases. That had been taken away from the Jews. And now here's the dilemma. The Greeks had a way of, of describing a dilemma as the head of a bull that had two horns. If you, if you choose the answer on the right, you get the horn on the right. If you choose the answer on the left, you get the horn on the left. If Jesus pronounces according to the law of Moses, then he is in trouble with the Romans. They will take care of him and he will be removed as a thorn in the side of the Jews. If he doesn't pronounce judgment in light of Rome's presence, then he can't claim to be on the side of God and God's will. So what will he choose? Jesus chooses to go between the horns. He says in verse 7 of John 8, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Right before that, John tells us that Jesus was riding on the ground. Don't know what he was riding. It's a mystery. Lots of people have talked about it. Possibly the words kanagrafe mean that he was riding against them. But whatever it was, they see the wisdom and they see the indictment in his words and they begin to drop the stones from the oldest to the youngest and leave. And so we go from the men with stones in hand to the woman caught in adultery. Whenever a, a, a class is taught by me or somebody else, there's the inevitable question that becomes nearly obligatory when it comes to John 8 and Bible classes. What about the man? Where's the dude? It takes two to tango. The law says the adulterer and the adulteress. Where's the man? All of these are good questions, but miss a very important point. This woman made the decision to violate another woman's marriage. This woman was guilty of adultery. Adultery as a sin and hated by God. All over the Old Testament, adultery is condemned. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 in the New Testament, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the what? The adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Christ doesn't ask for her side of the story. Christ recognizes that she is guilty. Is the man absolutely beside the point? She is guilty. And she expects the death sentence to be pronounced. And after all of her accusers have left them alone in the shadow of the temple, Jesus asks her, Woman, where, where are they? 
Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one. And in verse 11, he says, Then neither do I condemn you, he declares, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Which brings us to the third character, the one who condemns condemnation. And this is the Christ. Jesus is the one who has the right to judge her, but he says, I don't condemn you. The question is this. How can this be when He represents the holiness of God and the will of God? How can this be when He represents the fulfillment of, of the will of God? In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus, right here at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, so He's laying out what it means to be a disciple in the kingdom of God, says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus does this by reconciling both mercy and justice at the cross. Jesus doesn't give mercy because she doesn't deserve judgment. That she's not guilty and so he's going to give her mercy. No, she does deserve judgment and she does deserve condemnation. He gives her mercy because he will take her judgment on himself. Which means that sin is not going to be swept under the rug. He's not going to love her by pretending that the sin doesn't matter, or the sin doesn't count, or the sin's not a big deal in God's eyes. He's not going to sweep it under the rug. He is willing to be condemned for her. And that's why Scripture says in Romans chapter 8 that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the, flesh, by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The one in the story in John 8, the one who is worthy to pronounce judgment and execution by virtue of his sinless life is the one who is going to be judged and executed for us. And that's how judgment and mercy meet at the cross. And when you think about it, both the men with the rocks in their hand and the woman caught in adultery are found in each and every one of us. Some of the lessons, I think, from the text are these. That God's people need to drop their rocks. Let's not miss the irony of the story here. These men who have caught this woman in the act of adultery and have brought her before Jesus as disheveled and improperly dressed as she probably was to stand in public that way, these men have used this woman as badly as any other man 
in her life. They don't care about her. That's why they have rocks. When you don't care about people, it's easy to pick up rocks. They don't care about her. You know what she is? She's bait. She's just bait. Once went uh, fishing with Mark Blankenship and wanted to at the seine for, for little fish. And the reason for catching the little fish was that you would put them on a hook and throw them out there trying to catch a bigger fish. That's the trap. They don't care about her. She's nothing to them but bait. If they cared about her, where's the question? How can this woman be returned to God? How can she be turned from this life of sin? How can she be reconnected to the will of God? At some point, they lost sight of that. And at some point, they lost sight of their own sin. Who is sinless can toss the first stone. And they begin to realize the wisdom that is found, the truth that is found in a Scripture that Paul will write decades later in Romans 3, verse 23, that all have sinned. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. I, I don't know what you see when, when you look at, at, at brothers and sisters in Christ. But we are recipients of a great grace. of a great forgiveness and we have been pulled out from under the wrath of God and out from under His condemnation. And in the very next chapter, the, the disciples are going to be walking down the, the road with Jesus and they're going to see a man who is blind from birth and they're going to ask a question, who is it that sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. And Jesus is going to say, neither this man was born blind so that you might see a great work of God wrought in his life. We are recipients of a great grace. And every human being that we encounter is a possible recipient of that great grace as well. And I wonder, what does it take for us to be struck by what it means for grace and judgment? Judgment and grace. Forgiveness and justice and justice and forgiveness to meet at the cross in the death of Jesus for our sake. And when Jesus died on that cross, it was for this woman's sin that He died as well. And so Paul will write in Romans 8, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And, his, and, and James, the brother of Jesus, in chapter 2 of that general letter he wrote to the church, will say that mercy triumphs over judgment. And then another lesson, and we'll close with this, is we, we need to consider the kindness of God. We must consider the kindness of God toward us. We must hear Christ say as His blood is poured out for us in atonement. The words that He said to this woman. Go and sin no more. 
In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul's going to say, Do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to what? Repentance. In other words, that God's kindness is poured out in your life in order to change you. To transform you. To to radically revolutionize the way that you live. That God's kindness to you is one of the most powerful impacts, impacting uh, truths and promises that you will ever encounter in this life. That God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Jeff will lead us in a song right now. And our shepherds are going to come down to the front during the singing of the song as we're, we're praising God together. And I'm hoping that what we do is we praise God standing before Him and singing the words of, these, uh, of this song is that we will be thanking Him and worshiping Him and in gratitude making much of Him in worship, which is what the word worship means, to make much of Him, to, de- to describe worth to Him, that we'll be doing that as we contemplate the greatness of His grace that has come to us and how it has transformed us. But maybe like that woman, you're standing in condemnation. That you've done something or your life has gotten out of control or there's something that's going on that has plummeted you down into the depths. And and try as you can to climb out of that hole. You're not going to be able to do it. You know as well as I do that when you try to do that, it just becomes a slippery slope and sometimes deeper and deeper and more deeply you slide into that hole until all you have left as an asset is your voice. A voice that cries out to God where there is mercy and where there is forgiveness. The difference is the time of waiting is over because the morning has arrived. The new day has dawned as the forgiveness of sin is available to all. And not just the forgiveness of sin, but God's Spirit being poured into your life. And not just His Spirit being poured into your life, but that Spirit reminding you on a daily basis and making it so that He is not just God, but He is Abba, Father. And that He empowers you through that Spirit and through the Word and through the fellowship of of His people to be able to live that changed life, to live that life that is a prize of the cross, a trophy of His grace. And if that describes you tonight, then come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together.